What's up, guys? Thank you so much for listening to and supporting Picture Lock. I absolutely love film, as you know, and have given my life to studying the medium. As a filmmaker, I understand what it takes to make a film from its inception to the big screen. As a critic, I've been able to see the business of film from the marketing side of things. And as a film festival director, I've been able to see the distribution side, but more importantly, the enormous amount of talented filmmakers out there creating and crafting stories from their heart. And that's why I've started Picture Lock PR. If you're a filmmaker or producer looking to engage audiences and create relevance around your latest or upcoming project, head over to PictureLockPR.com. We can help you with your film's publicity from pre to post-production. Get more information and see the clients we've helped in the past at PictureLockPR.com. PictureLock PR. Finally, a partner as passionate as you. It's Picture Lock on WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. Welcome to another episode of the world-famous, award-winning show. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, filmmaker, film festival director, film critic, film publicist, and lover of film and TV. You can find all the back episodes and so much more at PictureLockShow.com. This week on the show, I have chair, secretary, and manager of the Creative Edge Collaborative, Talia Grimes. She'll talk about what the Creative Edge is and the Future of Film and Media Conference they're holding November 30th through December 1st at Bowie State University. I also talk with Deshana Spencer of Quayley TV. She'll talk about her online streaming platform designed to serve films and stories of and by people of the African diaspora. But first, Thanksgiving is over, but there are certainly movies to get to this weekend. I've got friend of the show, Tim Gordon, to talk about the films you can check out this weekend with the fam. And that's all ahead on Picture Lock. Hi, this is Jamie Lynn Littman, the writer, director, producer of Three Years in Pakistan, The Eric Audet Story, and you are listening to Picture Lock. You're listening to Picture Lock. Man, I can't believe it. But I have the man, the myth, the legend himself, Mr. Tim Gordon. He is the founder of the Lakefront Film Festival, the Black Reel Awards, president of the Washington, D.C. Area Film Critics Association. Man, I could go on and on with all this brother's titles. Tim, welcome back to Picture Lock. It's been too long, bro. Man, you forgot I was the fourth grade spelling champ. <laughs> I was. <laughs> What's going on, Kevin? Kevin, the What's up? And not much, bro. Man, happy Thanksgiving because uh, this is actually going to air. Well, actually, it'll air um, the day after Thanksgiving. However, I think it's still pertinent for um, the listeners because, you know, it's the day after. They're eating leftovers. They're thinking, hmm, what can we do as a family or with my friends? One of those things is generally go to the movies. Yep. Absolutely, and uh, this is a good week to be going to the movies, man, with the two major releases that are out. Yeah, so, Tim, if you don't mind, just hit us with the good stuff. Oh, man, what you what you want, the family-friendly, or you want that sports action sequel? <laughs> oh, man, let's, let's go with family-friendly first, and then, uh, you know, the film that's 40 years in the making. All right, well, first up is uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet. And, of course, this is the sequel to the 2012 film Wreck-It Ralph. Uh, same team that brought you that hit film brings you this one. Uh, in this one, of course, uh, you know, after finally finding a friend with Penelope in, in Wreck-It Ralph, now, as the story kind of evolves, 
Ralph has to understand what friendship means and how he lets his insecurities kind of get in the way in what is, to me, one of the two best animated films of the year, uh, outside of Incredibles 2. Uh, this film is a gold mine and works on multiple levels, A, for the target audience, which are young children, as well as the parents that will take them to the movie. Uh, the other added bonus of this film is that for the first time, Disney has opened up its vault and has licensed a lot of different characters from a lot of its other films and other franchises to be included in this, including characters from Star Wars, the Marvel Universe, as well as all of the princesses from all the other films that they've had for the last 60 or 70 years. So it is a lot of fun. It is a very wonderful screenplay that's very funny and witty, but with the serious side, with, you know, the friendship aspect and the challenges that Ralph and Vanellope are having, um, I love this movie. As I said at the top, I thought it was one of the two best animated films of the year, along with The Incredibles 2. This movie will be a straight-up Oscar nominee and potentially could win this year. Could oh, wow. Win, but wow. it's really that good. Yeah, Man. it's a really good film. Strong. Tim, I am so glad that I'm talking to you. I knew you're the man for the job because, you know, I forgot that, you know, Ralph Breaks the Internet was coming out. And that means that there's another film that I could take my kids to. So that's exciting because, you know, the film that we're about to talk, to, talk about next, I'm like, OK, who can we get to watch the kids? Me and my wife are already trying to angle, you know, can an auntie, grandma, who's going to be able to watch them <laughs> while we go see Creed 2? Um, but this is awesome. I'm really excited to, to, to hear this. Um, so do you need to see uh, Wreck-It Ralph in order to understand and appreciate uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet? I don't think you need to see it. Uh, per se, but I think it would give you a stronger context into the universe that Ralph and Vanellope and all the other characters inhabit um, because it would give you a much greater understanding if you saw the first one, but you don't necessarily have to have seen the first one, but if you could, see the first one. <laughs> Word. Well, well, my daughter was born in 2012, so so that lets me know. We're going to try to go ahead and see the first one, and then we'll see the, the second one in theaters this weekend. All right, man, so uh, please don't spoil this for me because I might have to throw my headphones off. Um, <laughs> but if you could, Creed 2, man, what can we expect? Creed 2, very easy, man. The eighth film in the Rocky franchise and the sequel to the wildly creative, I mean, wildly entertaining 2015 film, finds the story much like, it's, it's interesting, because just like a lot of the same things I said with uh, Ralph Racing the Internet or some of the similar things I'll say for this film, it's an evolving story that continues. I, you know, I don't want to, I'm no spoilers. So basically, he is in a much different position as a fighter at the beginning of this film, only to find out that there is another challenger lurking uh, halfway around the world in Russia who is posing a serious threat to him as a fighter. And there's a connection that if you watch Rocky Four, you absolutely get and understand what's going on, that there's a character that Rocky fought in that film whose son is going to fight Creed in this film. And all I will tell you is that as good as I thought the first one was, right? And, I, and to make sure I wasn't speaking out of school, I went back and rewatched the first one 
the day before or, or the day after I watched the second one. And I hate to say this, man, Stephen Capel, I think what he did in the with the nuance he added and a lot of the different characters, uh, as well as uh, elements that they borrow, believe it or not, from Black Panther, meaning the three-dimensionality of these characters, right? Because, like, back in the day, you would watch these movies with Rocky, and we would really get Rocky's backstory, and Rocky's fighting Clubber Lang, or Rocky's fighting Tommy Gunn, or any of these <laughs> right. other fighters. And you don't really get their story. You just kind of get that they're mad at, they're mad and they're motivated. But in this film, they really flesh out the Drago backstory. Oh, and to, under, to get you to understand what Drago's going through, what his daddy went through, uh, what, what pushes his buttons, as well as what we get with Adonis Creed and his relationship with Bianca, you know, how they bring uh, the Felicia Rashad, his mother, back into the fold, and the whole piece around the legacy. This film, to me, is absolutely better than the first one. I'm not going to say it might be. I thought it was better than the first one. Uh, the, the montage, the fight montage, which Rocky created back in 1976. Right. Wait till you see the montage of how they get Adonis Creed ready for this fight. Tim. We were in the theater like, what? Tim, Tim, I, I got Tim, I got tears in my eyes, man. Literally, you, my my listeners know Dude. that Creed Dude. Two has been my most anticipated film of the year. I wasn't able to see it with you guys in DC early. I, uh, I I'm gonna see it with my family this weekend, man. I I I, I woo, I'm so hyped. Creed, I don't even. Man, that is what is up. Tim Gordon, a.k.a. Film Gordon, I really appreciate you calling in. I'm so hyped. I, I, if I could go to the movies right now, I would. If you would, let the audience know how they can find you, find your work. Man, uh, let's see. Uh, I'm, everything is at Film Gordon, man. So, you know, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, uh, the website, everything is at Film Gordon. The FilmGordon.com is the website, at Film Gordon all your social media platforms. All right, brother. I appreciate you calling in. Thanks so much. No problem, man. Appreciate you. Hi, everybody. My name is Roxy Shi. I'm the director of Painkillers, and you are listening to Picture Lock. You're listening to Picture Lock. I am Kevin Sampson, and my next guest is CEO of T-Muse Media. She has worked on productions for Discovery Channel, National Geographic, and Smithsonian Networks. Currently, she's working with clients to produce the short film NOS on mental disorders, youth, and strict religious upbringing for third-person omniscient productions. She's a former board member of Friends of the Show, Women in Film International, and Women in Film and Video DC. But what brings her here today, <laughs> with the many roles that she has, is her role as chair, secretary, and manager for the Creative Edge Collaborative, a film and digital media collaborative hosting the 2018 Future of Film and Media Conference, Friday, November 30th through Saturday, December 1st, right up the street at Bowie State University. DMV listeners, Talaya Grimes, welcome to Picture Lock. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Talia, the first question that I always start out with, when did you first fall in love with film? Uh, I think I literally can't remember a time where I didn't love film or going to the movies. When I was a kid, I'm a military brat. And so what my mother used to do is um, 
take me and my brother to uh, the military base and go to what they call the base exchange, which is basic or commissary to buy whatever the family needed. But mm-hmm. instead of the, taking the shopping with her, she w- there's a movie theater. And they would run, um, they were still doing triple, you know, they would do a thing where it was a cartoon, like maybe sometimes two movies, like a cartoon, some like sort of short thing and then the movie. So we would, she would plop us there and it'd be, the place would be full of kids. <laughs> and the parents would be in the commissary and they'd be like doing whatever shopping. And this is back a long time ago where you didn't have to worry about people snatching your kids like you do now. Right, <laughs> all right, that right. Sort of stuff, that sort of predates all that. Um, but so I would just sit and watch, you know, I think I've seen every, and they were the weirdest movies of like every Elvis movie ever made. Like <laughs> every, no. every, every, the love bug, every, you know, <laughs> all kinds of, you know, Bugs Bunny so I I learned, um, and then there would be some odd things like maybe um, ballets or something else would be shown uh, that had been filmed. So I got a love of animation. I got a love of comedy. I got a love of, you know, they didn't show us anything scary thing. Like it was definitely kid stuff, but right. it was a wide breadth of. Also, we were stationed when I was little in Hawaii, and I used to just love, I really was influenced by um, Asian cinema and characters and early, you know, the earlier anime and it's blown up now, but a lot of the characters from Asia and the movies from Asia I watched endlessly. It sounds like you had a pretty good cinematic upbringing. I got to say though, I'm jealous of the fact that your mom would drop you off at the movie theater while she did grocery (laughs) shopping. Like, do you know how many times I had to be stuck in the cart? (laughs) I could have been watching a movie. Oh my God. I went with her sometimes but yeah it was a thing that they would leave us and you could do that it was on a base right it was very right. safe you know so yeah yeah that makes that and makes, she even did it here at andrews too andrews used to have a theater yeah oh, wow. yeah that makes a lot of sense all right so to lay us if you could let, let's get a little bit of your backstory like how did you get into the industry and what brought you to creative edge collaborative Sure. I forgot to mention one other influence I have to mention. My aunt, who's now passed away, was a big horror fan. And I would visit her in Louisiana, and she would we would just sit and watch tons of horror movies. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, but uh, the way I got into the industry is um, I actually had a degree in government and politics, international relations, uh, Middle East and South America. Uh, well, Latin America, and um, I did work in that field. I worked in international development. And then at some point, I ended up back, I'm working at the University of Maryland, and I ended up at a region engineering research center. And how this connects is somehow I was sort of given over to the multimedia person uh, there. And that's when I started. I was, you know, and I, was, I wasn't anybody high up. I was like an admin Um, and, but I, I started helping her with all this multimedia stuff and photography and, you know, doing all the PR and stuff for these engineering projects and these biotech projects and various other things, along with other duties that I had. And that piqued my interest. Unfortunately, University of Maryland had gotten rid of its media program (laughs) back then, uh, because of budget cuts. Back then people didn't think media was the future. Right. And so, um, I ended up getting into the new school in New York. Um, so I went there for a master's in media studies. I don't know why I did that. I just did it. <laughs> so I went up there and while I was, you know, in school, I, I was working international development to pay my way, but I was doing videos for that in that 
you know, for the place I was working with. And then I was um, in school and then I was just sort of also freelancing around as a PA, just trying to get experience. And that's how I, that's how I sort of made that transition from international development to media. Though um, I came back here right after, not too long after September 11th. When I came back, I thought I would miss the two, like I thought I would do communications with international development. Instead, I ended up um, connecting with women in film and I ended up volunteering their office and meeting people. And I ended up getting like gigs on, you know, reality shows and stuff like that. <laughs> so I kind of lost the international development part for a minute. Yeah, that that's so interesting. Um, I, one, I, I just I always love when filmmakers, uh, folks in the industry come on and they say, you know, I started out as a lawyer or I started out as something that's like totally out of the box, not necessarily film. But then, you know, as you said, you just had this one chance encounter with the media department and boom, like it just kind of right. puts you on this new trajectory. Folks, you're listening to Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the chair, secretary, and manager of the Creative Edge Collaborative, Talia Grimes. Talia, if you could, um, just let us know a little bit about what Creative Edge Collaborative is, and then from there, if we could go into the Future of Film and Media Conference. So um, Creative Edge uh, Collaborative is a nonprofit, and... um, you know, we have this debate all the time about what Creative Edge Collaborative is, uh, but to, to loosely, to sort of describe it is, um, we are a collective. We don't have a membership. We were people that met in Prince George's County, Maryland, who worked in media or were, um, had loved ones that worked in media or loved media film, and we were just tired of always having to go somewhere else. I mean, outside of Prince George's County, to experience film and other arts, both just experience them to go to go to the cinema. For example, there were not, you know, independent films were not being regularly shown in Prince George's County. Mm. Um, we were also, um, as, as people working in the industry, it was like Prince George's County where we lived was just our bedroom community. And if we wanted to do anything, you know, we had to go to D.C. or we had to, even Montgomery County and Northern Virginia got more love than Prince George's County. Though, you know, I had an inkling that people lived, there were a lot of people living in Prince George's County that worked in industry. We were just not organized in any kind of way or even acknowledge each other in that way because we always just met somewhere else or worked somewhere else. So um, we came together Firstly, to like start, basically start doing things where we live um, and start looking at the resources we have and start pulling together sort of a, a, a collaborative of um, filmmakers, digital creatives, all sorts of other creatives to try to help build some infrastructure, some creative economy right here in Prince George's County. So that's in a very long-winded nutshell of what we are. Yeah, um, and, okay. And, <laughs> we don't have a membership, so really it's about the collaborative. So you be, you're, you're a creative edger when you put in the work because we, we are not based, we didn't become created through money or, you know, large grants. or We've, we've basically formed partnerships with organizations and people to make our events happen. And so it means people have to be willing to put in, you know, the work. And if you hang around long enough, 
you're just you become one of us <laughs> right <laughs> like you kevin <laughs> <laughs> i i hear it. I, I, know. <laughs> yeah suddenly I, i'm thinking about it i'm like wait i'm, I'm speaking i'm yeah. doing this radio show yeah you're right <laughs> Yeah, you just, I think you just showed up like a couple of years ago at one of our feature films or something. Yeah. <laughs> now look at exactly. <laughs> you get absorbed into the nebula. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. So, fo- folks, you have the ability to come to the or go to the Future of Film and Media Conference uh, that's going to be held at Bowie State University uh, November 30th and through December 1st. So, Talaya, if you could, uh, like, let folks know what they can expect to see. I mean, we could definitely go through the schedule, but it looks like you'd have a jam-packed two days of great information. Yeah, so basically, we we have two days, and I'll give you a little bit of backstory. Part of the whole, the future film came out of our desire to, it started, it wasn't future film we had a little bit of space that uh, we had negotiated with a small business, um, uh, Pierre Walcott, who is our founder and me, um, and uh, Andrew Millington, who um, was with us at the time. And we just, I just said, you know, let's just start gathering people. This space could hold maybe 12 people around the table. <laughs> That's how big it was. <laughs> I literally went to Dunkin' Donuts and called some people, everybody in our group, the, the small group that we were at the time, um, called, you know, a few friends and like, you know, I don't think 15 people showed up who all lived pretty much in Princess County or in um, Montgomery County. And I had to run like right in this sort of DMV, you know, vicinity came. Uh, but a lot were PG and they were all like, wow, I didn't know you lived here. I didn't know you lived here either. I didn't know you lived here either. <laughs> so from that, um, we realized that little small space wouldn't work. We moved to the next year. Uh, we did a gathering, and we moved to um, the uh, Bus Boys and Poets Zen Room and, uh, in uh, Hyattsville. And in that back room, we gathered. Um, so now we have the filmmakers. We had producers. We had um, photographers. We had um, all the different parts. We had people that cook food. Like people, All the different parts that make a film, um, music people, people that do music, and what we do a little differently, and this is what I'm leading to the future film, we invited the the local government, the local arts council. We invited the Maryland Film Office. We invited um, some politicians. We invited the local organizations, museums, uh, University of Maryland, like the, that were right there in the area because if you don't know, Busboys and Poets is in that arts district. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... And that's what you can expect at our event. We invited local entities that work in media, um, both the people and their company. You know, so it's a it's a big mix of at the future of film. The first day focuses very much on creative economy and people that are doing things to bring jobs. New <laughs> um, you know, so people who are, who are the job makers, people who create the venues, people who create all the things you need to be successful. You know, if you're making a film, you need somewhere to show it. And if we're living in a community that isn't providing the venues, then we have a problem. But um, I think sometimes people, one of our things that feature when we highlight places, people, and things that are doing that can be supportive of filmmakers and other creatives that people really don't know about or don't really think about that exist. 
So um, that's definitely day one. And then day two is definitely very hardcore, more on film practice, talking about what you need for to make a film successful, branding, you know, other things like that. And then also we, we talk about the art of film also on day two. So it's a, so our conference, I think that makes it a little difference is that you get, you get both of those things. So it's very uh, community rooted, but uh, we have a, uh, larger regional, um, nationally, even global reach. You'll be surprised who shows up at our conference. So it, let's say if I'm a filmmaker listening to this and I live in uh, DC or Vir- Northern mm-hmm. Virginia, um, you know, is this all for you know PG County or can I get something out of it as well? No, we always say we're Prince George's County and beyond, and we include that greater DMV. You know, <laughs> so right. um, come out and see what people overlook Prince George's County. They don't see all the people that are here. For example, we're at Bowie State University. You might say, why Bowie State University? Bowie State University has a great film program. It's under Visual Communications. The head of it is Tao, and he's going to be having his own panel on Afrofuturism. Um, they have they have an actual entire fine arts uh, program out there that I don't think people, everybody knows about. They built, what is it, I think six years ago, maybe longer now, um, an amazing $71 million arts, um, uh, what do you want to call it, building <laughs> department <laughs> yeah. with, op- with like opera-style auditorium, a black box, a dance room, um, galleries. All this is there, and most people don't know what's there. Um, this is a resource that, you know, the community could be using, particularly filmmakers. Um, so, you know, come out and learn something new. Um, then our speakers come from all over, you know, DMV and around um, the DMV area and beyond. Um, you, I know you already talked to our keynote, who we're very happy to have, Deshana Spencer, who, if you don't know, um, created Quelly TV, what they call the Black Netflix. So, you know, come out and meet her. Um, of course, Kevin's going to be there. <laughs> so, <laughs> come out and meet him. And then we have a panel on um, by Lucent Parsons. This is another resource and people probably don't know about. He runs a, um organization called Maverick. It's connected to the University of Maryland. Uh, Creative Edge Collaborative is an affiliate of the University of Maryland. And they specialize in virtual and augmented reality. This is the future of content making. And what people don't know, probably don't know, is University of Maryland is vying to be the basically the lead on virtual reality and augmented reality, definitely in the Mid Atlantic, if not the nation, if not the world. Like they're this is a this is a big deal from they're building a, a building um, dedicated to it. And if you're a content maker, you need to know about virtual reality, augmented reality. You come to our conference, you can you can meet. Lucian and his um, amazing panel. It's Picture Lock. I am Kevin Sampson. I've been talking with Talia Grimes. She is the chair, secretary, and manager of the Creative Edge Collaborative. Talia, it sounds like you guys have a great lineup. I think an important question, if folks are interested in, you know, just gaining more knowledge on uh, the business of film, the art of film, which they will be able to do at this conference, how can they actually find out more information? What website should they go to? They should go to www.fof.media. 
And um, once they're there, um, you can see there's a couple of um, links that they click. One of them is purchase tickets, and that'll take you to our Eventbrite site uh, where you can purchase tickets, and they're very affordable. Um, I believe that you can get one of the, you know, they're basically between um, 15 and $65. So if you want to come to two days, $65. But if we have student discounts, $15 and everything in between and one day and two days. So you can go check that out, www.fof.media. Um, and you'll also see the full, it's two days full from pretty much eight to four plus the reception afterwards. So you will see that there. Come on out, check it out. Yeah, definitely. There's going to be tons of folks there, um, you, you know, as you said, you got the director of the Maryland Film Office that's going to be there, Deshauna, who we'll be speaking with in a, just a little bit, uh, Teo, myself. Um, it should be a really great time. But the biggest thing I think that's really important is, you know, when creatives get together, there's that energy, uh, the networking that you're able to do, uh, and hopefully building that team uh, to help you on projects in the future. All that's going to take place, again, Friday, November 30th. And Saturday, December 1st at Bowie State University. Uh, Talia, if you could, um, is there a way to follow you guys on social media? I know, uh, you know, it's probably... Yes, um, we are on, um, we're pretty much on Meetup. Uh, Facebook is a really good way. If you go to just look up Facebook, uh, Creative Edge Collaborative. We post all our events there. Same with Meetup. You can go like us, and you and um, you can also usually we have a thing where you can sign up for our events through either Facebook or Meetup. Chair, Secretary, and Manager of the Creative Edge Collaborative, Talaya Grimes. Thanks so much for coming on Picture Thank you so much for having me. Let's take a quick break for promos. Stay tuned. What if you could have a film critic, film festival director, film publicist, and fellow filmmaker guide you with your film's PR and marketing journey from pre-production to post? I'm Kevin Sampson, and my online course, PR for the Indie Filmmaker, does just that. In this course, I'm going to teach you how to set up your film to engage an audience and build a community long before you call action. I'll show you how to approach critics to make them aware of your film like publicists do, and as a director of two film festivals, I won't just teach you hacks and secrets to reduce entry fees, but how you can use the festival circuit to create buzz around your film. I'm a huge supporter of diverse storytelling and film, and I believe the most unique voices come from indie filmmakers. That's who I've supported over the years with my show, Picture Lock, whether on TV or on radio. With as much experience as I've had as an independent filmmaker myself, critic, publicist, and festival director, I realized that most indie filmmakers just need access to the knowledge that big firms provide to achieve success. So in this course, I'm going to demystify some of the process and give you everything I know in a behind-the-scenes look at the sides of the business you don't always see. So if you're an indie filmmaker that's looking to change the game with your film's PR and marketing, make sure you check out PR for the Indie Filmmaker. Head on over to PRForTheIndieFilmmaker.com and get a free preview of the course, PR for the Indie Filmmaker. Get your film seen, build community, and become an army of one. Picture Lock question of the week last week was, what was the first indie film you saw that blew your mind? 
On Instagram, at Jay Geibler said, City of God, amazing movie. At DC Black Film Fest said, Robert Townsend's Hollywood Shuffle. At Henry Leaker said, Frailty, totally underrated horror film from the 2000s, stars and is directed by late great Bill Paxton. It's a compelling family drama that elevates a truly terrifying horror concept. Also, the usual suspects and all of the Evil Dead movies. Major thanks to everyone for participating and leaving your messages. I'm going to give the question of the week a break for the holiday. I'll be back next week. So let's jump into the interview with Deshauna Spencer. Deshauna, you know it's all love, but for the listeners, I purposely didn't cut up her backstory, which is a little lengthy, but I think it really sets the tone for how and why she created Quayley TV. Hopefully it'll also serve as motivation for those of you who may not be happy where you currently are, but to see how you can use the journey to create something great. Here's the interview with Ms. Spencer. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and my next guest is the founder and CEO of Quayley TV, a video streaming network that curates undiscovered and award-winning indie films, documentaries, web series, and children's programming of the global black community. And she's a radio host and producer of Empower Hour, a weekly social justice show on DC's 89.3 FM WPFW. She is the keynote speaker of the 2018 Future of Film and Media Conference. Deshauna Spencer, welcome to Picture Lock. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's my pleasure, Deshauna. The first question I always start with, when did you first fall in love with film? It's an interesting question. So, you know, growing up, like a lot of the kids who grew up back in the day, you watch, a, you go to Blockbuster and you rent a bunch of movies, at least your parents rent a bunch of movies. And so I would say for me, um, it was Hollywood Shuffle. That's when <laughs> I fell in love with <laughs> black film. It was interesting. The first time I saw it, I was really young. My parents rented it um, at Blockbuster and, I remember thinking about, as a kid, like how monumental the storyline was, really about how Hollywood, um, how they treat black actors. And I probably shouldn't have watched it because it was, <laughs> there was some language in the movie <laughs> and some other things in the movie that, you know, like a seven-year-old shouldn't be watching. Right. Um, but I remember watching it again, I was like 25, and I was like, damn, like... <laughs> It was a genius movie, and so I think I really fell in love with film then um, from Hollywood Shuffle, and that's when I, even at a young age, really saw the the importance of having film or having content that talked about issues that are important to our community, and I learned that at an early age just from watching Hollywood Shuffle. Man, that is a pretty, like you said, monumental film to actually kind of start out with. And uh, I mean, obviously you saw plenty of films before then, but the fact that you could understand the storyline at such a young age, that's that's pretty incredible. Yeah, uh, well, I've always been one of those pretty critical thinking kids. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so I, used to, I was an avid reader of a newspapers growing up. My dad would read it, and I would read it after he did. And I used to watch Meet the Press before going to church. So most kids don't really get up on Sunday mornings turning on Meet the Press, <laughs> but I did, which is you know weird. But I love I love news. I love I love stories, and I so I, I like stories that are truthful. And I've always been like that since I was a kid. So yeah, it was kind of interesting that childhood get Hollywood shuffle, but 
I thought it was a really great movie. Yeah, yeah. So take me from, you know, the Hollywood shuffle days and t- as a kid watching Meet the Press to the woman now who has founded Quayley TV. If you could, like, give us your backstory because... Yours is a little different from most filmmakers that I have the sh- on the show. So how did you get into the industry? Sure. So born and raised Memphis, Tennessee, working class parents. My dad, a truck driver. My mom, teacher's assistant um, in Memphis. And I will say that growing up, I knew I wanted to be a storyteller. I didn't know how I would make money doing that. I was an avid reader, uh, as I mentioned earlier, but not only did I read newspapers, I read everything. I used to read about a book a week. I used to win, like, most read in each class, which that was bus to predominantly white school in Memphis, so it wasn't like I was in my neighborhood. Like, I was I was competing against other white kids, and I wasn't really great, great in math. I wasn't great at science, but I could read. <laughs> I could write. Like, I knew. <laughs> if I could do anything, I could do that, and I knew that at an early age, and so I thought initially I maybe would be like a novelist, and then as an avid reader, I would read stories about some of the famous writers, uh, especially you think about 1800s, 1900s, and, and how depressing <laughs> their lives were. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I remember, like, I used to watch The Three Stooges, and I thought it was funny as a kid, and I remember reading the biography of The Three Stooges and walking like, oh, my God, their lives were so sad. They're alcoholics and drugs and dealing with mental illness and and that's what I learned early on, too, that a lot of times people who are very creative can also deal with mental illness because so many creative people do. And so I was like, well, don't want to go into this because am I going to go crazy? Like, I just think of it as a kid. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Makes sense. And so in high school, um, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I wasn't sure if I was even going to go to college. I wasn't, like, the top of my class. Most people were shocked, and I said I wasn't, like, a straight student even a B student. I was pretty much an average student. I did, you know, enough to to get by, but I just wasn't into school at all. And then my senior year, um, I ended up being on the yearbook staff, and I was the only kid who was not a popular kid who was on yearbook staff. I don't know how I got on the yearbook staff. All the popular kids got on to make sure that pictures were in the yearbook, and I got on because (laughs) I thought it would be really I thought it was really fun. And she made me an editor, associate editor of the yearbook, and I, became, I was taking pictures and interviewing students around campus, and I was like, well, maybe I do like journalism, I do like reading newspapers, I like watching Meet the Press and 60 Minutes and all that stuff, which most kids don't like to watch. So I was like, maybe I should be a journalist. And so that's when I really got excited about college and did go to college to, to study journalism and communications. I went to Jackson State University in Jackson, Mississippi, and when I was a junior in college, I ended up working for the newspaper, the largest paper in the state of Mississippi. Initially, as an obit writer, um, but then obituary writer for people who don't know, like, what's obit? Obituary writer, <laughs> right. and then eventually <laughs> uh, as, a, as a general summer reporter, or GA, as they call it, in, in the media industry. After that, I, I'm a graduate and going to, to the Bay Area working for the Oakland Tribune as a um, cop reporter mostly, which is very depressing. Um, I ended up interviewing a lot of moms whose kids were killed in gun violence. And I remember, you know, getting tired and being very depressed about doing those types of stories. I was just an intern there, but um, I got offered a full-time job as a senior cop reporter, or actually going to make me the lead cop reporter at like 21 and mm. I met the coroner, the police chief. Uh, I actually toured the, 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 the main precinct in Oakland, California, and 
and the, everyone's so excited about this young girl. She's going to be lead cop reporter. Because they like how I wrote stories because I, as a as a person, very empathetic. Like I will always include empathy in my story. So it wasn't just a typical yeah, this person was shot, you know, in the car. The dad tried to really bring out the human side of every person, you know, who who was a victim. And so they seemed to like that approach. But I did not want to do that for a living. I would have. Being like the the statistics in the books I read as a kid, right. I was like, kill myself. Like, there's none in the world. Like, seriously, I'm not joking. Like, I would have, I I wouldn't have been able to make it um, as a cop reporter. It would be too depressing for me. And so, um, I ended up staying in the Bay doing PR. And when I said I hated PR, I needed to actually be engaged in writing stories, not writing. I don't say propaganda, not PS propaganda, but just stories that you know sort of were fluffy. It wasn't really my my thing. And so. I ended up going back down south, working for a weekly paper as a feature writer. Um, that's my feature. I was a feature section editor for uh, a newspaper in in Kentucky, and that was like managing managing a whole section of a paper every week, and um, which was like the first time I was actually in charge of content, creating content, not creating content, but actually managing content, dictating what was going to be on the cover, dictating the type of stories we were going to cover who's going to be writing them, what pictures to choose. And I would say since then, like, that's been my job ever since I was, like, 22, curating. I've been curating since I was 22 years old. Of course, initially it was mostly in the magazine newspaper realm uh, because once I left there, I was only there for eight months because I hated down there. I ended up going to Buffalo, New York, and I was a AmeriCorps VISTA volunteer. So it's like... AmeriCorps is like the Peace Corps before America, and I did that full time for a year, and I was also in charge of uh, curating content. I created newsletters for some nonprofit organizations to talk to the kids how to how to um, be journalists, and you know we would have computer. We actually got a donation from Apple with the Apple computers. We had some, you know, got some um, pictures, and, and we taught them how to like take pictures and. And you know, crop stories and, and craft them into stories, interview skills, and things like that. And when I left there, I came to DC at 24 years old, and I ended up working for an organization as a magazine editor, managing um, freelance writers. I was in charge of a whole magazine, the, the the video, the entire communications department, literally at 24. And I was really nervous about that position, but I wanted to learn. Everything it was about, initially the magazine industry. My dream was to start an online magazine, and I did do that. Um, my my first venture was called Empowered Magazine, and we focused on social justice issues affecting black people around the world. And the whole purpose of Empower was for people to not only read about things that are happening, but actually take action based off of what they see in the news. And so I really wanted to take journals into the next level than versus, like, this is what happened, and people feel bad. But I want the people. I wanted people to feel empowered about what they saw, and not just take it and like, okay, this is what's happening. But now I can do something about it. And that was the whole purpose of Empower. And I worked in there for a couple of years while I was uh, working um, for this organization. And it was really interesting because my other dream was also to be a documentary filmmaker. I was going to go to NYU, but it was very expensive and. And I just couldn't afford to do it. And I didn't want to go into debt to, to, to get a, a film degree because I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker. And taking those journalism skills and just sort of learning on the fly how to use a camera, 
uh, I took some courses uh, locally in the D.C. area. I took a documentary class. I, I took some producing classes, like at D.C. TV. And, um, in 2014, I actually did my first documentary, which no one can see because I'm feeling ashamed of it because it was my first one. Um, but it was called Mom Interrupted. It was about moms who lost their children to gun violence under the age of 30 in D.C. And um, I ended up doing that, that type of, I almost call it a story, but that documentary Mainly because of my background as a cop reporter, I remember thinking I would never interview a mom ever again who lost her child to gun violence because it was so depressing. I, I got so depressed writing about it, and I just felt like it was doing more harm than good. But I remember I was at the Crush of Coffee Foundation back in 2013. I remember um, listening to a woman um, in Chicago. She was a senior hero, and she was talking about gun violence in Chicago, and so she was saying, like, you know, people always say, how can we prevent gun violence in our communities? People ask clergy, people ask, ask law enforcement, um, they ask politicians, we ask everyone but the mother, and so she was like, if you talk to moms, we can end it, and that's when the idea for Moments Interrupted came to my head, and I ended up working on a documentary, and in the, it was like at a, a local film festival here um, in the D.C. area, and I was really excited because I actually got accepted into a film festival. And the biggest lesson I learned from that was, okay, I can tell a good story, but maybe having someone else manage the lights and the cameras and all that stuff, <laughs> that's, not my, that's not my gift. I'm, storytelling is my gift. I know it is, uh, but everything else, not so much. Right. <laughs> um, but during the same time, too, I was also kind of starving for more independent films and documentaries, um, content that I learned a lot about while doing my um, doing my documentary. I was like, wow, there's so many great films out here. Gosh, you know, when people think about black directors, they think about the greats, Ava DuVernay, Spike Lee, Ryan Coogler, you know, they think about those top 10 black filmmakers and they think, oh, they're the only black filmmakers out here. When they're, well, you know, right, you and I know, there are thousands of black filmmakers who have, have really great content that come out all the time but they don't have the resources, they don't have the connections, or the case may be, you know, one station, a film festival runs to put their content out there. And so um, that's when the wheels started turning about creating something that can do that. And it was really what started from me just watching cable TV, which I no longer have. And I was just flipping through a whole bunch of channels. And I'm like, I don't see anything. I barely see the black people. And the black people I do see, like, a stereotypical they don't represent the people or friends who I know. And I was like, well, maybe there's a streaming service. Or actually, I did. I ended up going to Netflix thinking like, oh, maybe Netflix have all these really great independent black movies that I'm looking for that I read about, like on Shadow and Axe and other blogs. But there were a few of them were there, but most of them were not, especially some of the short films. And so I was like, well, maybe some really smart person um, created a streaming service that could do this. And when I couldn't find what I was looking for, that's really when the light bulb hit off. It's like, well, maybe I'll do it, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> Who says, oh, I'm going to start a streaming service. Like, it's like nothing or something. <laughs> um, but <laughs> that's kind of how it started from there. Just wanting to see these movies, wanting to provide a space for independent filmmakers to showcase their work. And um, and I made the decision because my dream was to be this, docu this big documentary filmmaker. It's like, well, do I want to focus on creating more documentaries or creating more access to other filmmakers? And I can always go back and do filmmaking if I want to. And I decided to focus on creating a space. And, I, and eventually I can go back to doing that filmmaking, hopefully, in the future. 
You're listening to Picture Lock on WERA 96.7 FM. I am Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the founder and CEO of Quayley TV, Deshauna Spencer. Deshauna, uh, if you could like let folks know a little bit about Quayley TV and how the platform actually works. I know that you know, a lot of people say it's the black Netflix, but that's not how you want it to be marketed and known as. <laughs> so uh, let us know a little bit more about Quayley TV, please. Sure. I mean, you're a really great you know, intro. Like, we're a video streaming service that really focus on the global black community. So whenever I tell people, like, like they say, what does that mean? It's like African-American, African content. Like, yeah, but it's also Afro-European, Afro-Latin, uh, Afro-Caribbean. You know, we have content pretty much on every continent except for Antarctica, literally, because, well, you know, we're not quite there yet. You just that maybe some story <laughs> to tell there. But uh, the whole mission is to, making sh- to make sure that we're telling the full story about black culture that you don't see in mainstream media, especially stories outside of the U.S. Um, as an African-American, I grew, like a lot of African-Americans, we grew up in this bubble. Like, we know when our ancestors came from Africa, but we didn't really know the full story about people who look like us in other parts of the world. And as someone who, you know, especially growing up, grew up, growing up working class, I wasn't really able to travel to other parts of the world. And I wasn't aware about the, really how vast the African diaspora really is. I really was thinking, like a lot of people think, America, Africa. Um, and I remember the first time I went to Belize, in Haiti, not Haiti, but you know, uh, Honduras, I saw people who look like me. I remember meeting girls, women at like some of the local shops. They're asking me about my hair, what type of hair products I use, and they go on YouTube to watch videos for hair. I mean, things like that. And we were just having normal conversations about black girls with hair, you know, and they were, this was Honduras. And so it was really an eye opening experience for me. And, and once I got back home, I started really doing some research about the African diaspora, which makes sense. You think about the slave trade. The slave trade went pretty much almost everywhere. And so we are almost everywhere. And so I'm hoping that this be a platform which we can learn about other, other black cultures. We can, hopefully, if we can travel, we can see how the people live who look like us and learn something from those cultures. And I'm hoping that this is a space we can come together and, and come back some of the issues we're seeing around the world affecting black people and hopefully we can take action from those things and so you know we're at its core we're a streaming service but believe me i'm all about how can we how can we start a revolution through content i mean that's what my whole mission is and so for a lot of people that's not you know i talk to potential investors anyone here how can you start a revolution with uh, with video streaming? They want to know what's your exit strategy. How am I going to get to your? How are you going to get to ten next and get my money back? <laughs> they don't really care about a revolution, but that's what I care about. And so, um, so yeah. But but that's what we are pretty much in a nutshell. How long ago was it that you officially launched? It was September of last year. September uh, of last year. We launched. So we launched beta two thousand fifteen fall two thousand fifteen and. It took us two years to launch the beta. That's a story in itself. But thankfully, we were able to launch other beta section of last year. Gotcha. And so if you could, like, since your launch um, and probably since September of last year, like, uh, what has the response been, the community of Quayley TV <laughs> members? Um, what's, what's the buzz? What's the, the haps? 
So people are really excited about what we're doing because we're different. So Koi TV may not be for everyone. If you do want to watch, you know, um, the throwback, throwback black shows, you know, they're not going to be on Koi TV. But if you want to learn about black culture, we're the space to go, and people really appreciate that. You know, they they bring, they watch it because they want the kids to see historical figures beyond the main ones we always hear about. Um, people are excited about our documentaries. I remember when I was talking to a potential investor and I was telling them, you know, about the documentaries, like, well, black folks, this is a black, <laughs> black uh, investor, well, black folks don't want to watch that. Black folks want to watch a Madeira movie or a subsequent comedy. They, they you know, black people want to escape what's happening. They don't want to be reminded about what's happening, and not that we're reminding people about what's happening, but we are educating people. I think it's a mixture of education and entertainment. And right now, our number one genre on Koi TV, they're documentaries. When we get requests for, for films, they're documentaries. Most of the time, that's what people are requesting, not just six-year-old people, but 20-year-old people. Everyone's looking for these films. People are looking to learn more about our culture because the education system doesn't teach it to us. We've learned, we have one chapter, it's bad, probably the whole chapter, the flavor is like a page and a half in, in the in the book, an American <laughs> history book, right? right? And then before then, we know we got plopped, we got plopped here, our answers got plopped here. There's no story before then, you know, growing, I remember growing up really hating, not hating sounds mean, but you know, kind of way, like, learn about these different dynasties in other parts of the world. You learn about you know, um, you know these Greek dynasties and these dynasties in parts of Asia. Where were the African dynasties? Like they didn't exist, and you actually think that we were. You know, we didn't come from kings and queens or something like to say. You know, right, we right. Actually, we came from nothing. You know, our identity started once we hit America, American soil or soil in Latin America, the soil in parts of Europe. But that's where our identity started. But it started way before then, and so. My goal with Koi TV, or, or one of the things that people really appreciate with Koi TV is the fact that we tell those stories that you wouldn't see anywhere else, and, um, and hopefully people are becoming educated from it. So people are really excited about what we're doing, and I'm always excited when people say, thank you, sister, I appreciate it. You know how black folks are. <laughs> <laughs> right. Thanks for the email. It's our hello email account. Hey, sister, sitting on the founder. I want to tell you, thank you for what you're doing, you know, because <laughs> even though y'all do read pretty much every email, <laughs> but, you know, that type of... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that type of no, I, like, well, every note, hey, sister, like, you know. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but, you know, you know it's, it's cool, though, and it's understandable, because, I mean, even with, like, DC Black Film Festival, it, you know, it's it's a certain camaraderie and, you know, like, brother sisterhood that, you know, you share. Because, and, and I was thinking about that the other day, and this is kind of getting off subject, we'll get right back into it, but in terms of, you know, being a, a brown person in America, like, there's a certain amount of automatic, like, acknowledgement of things that you've had to deal with in life that, like, you just, you can't put it into words for people that aren't black, you know, or aren't brown. And, and that's just how it is. That's, that's what it is. So it's almost like in those, hey, sister, what's up, brother, you know, like, you're you're acknowledging um the the fight the struggle the good and the bad um all in that so so it totally makes a lot of sense uh you're listening to picture lock 
I'm talking with the founder and CEO of Quayley TV, Deshana Spencer. Um, Deshana, before we wrap things up here, um, because I want to get make sure people know how they can check out Quayley TV and follow you guys on social media. Um, but I, I have one question, and um, I think you kind of hit it with you know, the, the documentaries and the fact that people are really kind of gravitating toward finding um, that history. And so I guess, uh, what are some of your visions for the future of Quayley TV? Like you said, if it's bigger than just a streaming service and, you know, um, the <laughs> I guess the revolution will be televised. <laughs> um, what, what's kind of your vision for the future? So community, building community around content. Um, and so that will be events. It will be other ways in which we can tap into our customers. We really want to make, and we're not going to call them customers. We're calling them members. We're calling, calling them our tribe. And so, you know, we're really trying to create a tribe around our content around the world. And that is where I see Quilly TV going. I would love to create a Quilly Award um, that's solely around independent black films. Because people always ask me, like, you have a, um, you know, a film festival, and people say, oh, what are you doing next, the film festival? Like, why? Like, why are you going to start this? So many people, it makes no, like, I would never start a film festival. Uh, I know a lot of great people who have great film festivals in everywhere in the world, right? So why would I do that? But instead, I want to create, like, a Black Oscars where um, we're, you know, having certain film, Black film festivals that are kind of like Oscar contending or Quilly contending, film festivals where they will say, hey, you know, these are award-winning films and these should be in, you know, in the running for the Quali Awards. And the whole purpose of the Quali Awards would be literally to put at the forefront a lot of these independent films that people would never hear about because they don't know much about the independent film space. So I really want to create that hopefully the next, you know, 20, 24 months to create this Quali Awards. Um, and I really want to also be a space in which we can support other other um, independent filmmakers do a fund or some type of thing. We're also going to create um, an awareness month around independent filmmakers, black filmmakers around the world in, around March. We're hoping to start March of next year where we're just honoring black filmmakers, people who are less and less filmmakers, and just saying, hey, this is this person. They were born in whatever, and, and they're you know, in Kenya, and, and they, were, they revolutionized filmmaking for their community, and they create these films. And so, our, like I said, our whole goal is to support independent filmmakers and do so much more around, um, around film than the overall, you know, um, what we're doing beyond just streaming, streaming content. Like, we're thinking beyond that for sure. Awesome. So, Deshana, if you could, how can folks find, you know, Quayley TV online and follow you guys on social media? Sure. So our website for people like Koi Lee, how do you spell that? It's um, K-W-E-L-I-TV. If you Google www.kwei.tv, you will find us or just Google Koi TV. Uh, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We have a Snapchat, but we don't really use it. But <laughs> it's uh, K-W-E-L-I-TV. That's how you type in and You'll find us everywhere. We're only $5.99 a month, so we're cheaper than the other guys. But you will not be disappointed with the type of content you will find once you get on Quilly TV. Awesome. Founder and CEO of Quilly TV, Deshauna Spencer. Thanks so much for coming on Picture Lot. Thank you. 
That's all for this episode. I'd like to thank my guests, Tim Gordon, Talaya Grimes, and Deshauna Spencer for coming on the show. For radio listeners, make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear Deshauna's after-show conversation with me. You can do that in iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Blueberry, wherever you catch your podcast, so that you can make sure you get those after-show versions and unlocked versions of the show. If you're a fan of Alexa skills, just say, Alexa, play Picture Lock Podcast, and I'll come right up. Feel free to leave a five-star review of the show as well. I really appreciate y'all doing that. You're supporting the filmmakers I have on the show by allowing more people to be exposed to the podcast. It's quick, it's easy, and free. So just by giving me that five-star review, it means so much to me and the folks that come on the show. Thank you so much. You can find Picture Lock on most social media. All social media is at Picture Lock Show. Watch back episodes of the TV show at youtube.com slash Picture Lock Show and subscribe. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, you can fill out the form on the website. All music is done by Mike S, the producer 13. Make sure you follow him on all things social media at Mike S, the producer, numeral one, numeral three. Thanks, bro. I'm Kevin Sampson, and until next time, I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving and that you stay locked on film.